everybody, and welcome to another episode of Boxes and Lines. Go for it, John. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. The luck of the Irish be with you. The crowd, except Irish, seem to like this shit. But anyway, thanks everybody for joining us. And we are still at home in the COVID-19 crisis, but we have a special guest today. CEO of Bestex Research Group, Hitesh Mittal, is joining us. And also we have Eric Stockland from IEX, our Chief Strategy Officer, who made it to one podcast and wouldn't come back until we did one outside of the pod because he sweated mm-hmm. so much in it. So Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It was uh, it, that was quite an experience. I mean, my sense is that Eric is a little bit of a sweaty guy anyway, and that pod back in the office is just like it's like a sweat lodge at Burning Man. Settle down, John. You're you're gonna make him nervous, and he'll sweat again. Okay, so <laughs> I, I do my best work when I'm dry. So that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, Hitesh, you don't know what you said yes to, but we appreciate you joining the podcast. And I thought we'd start it off by legging in and just asking you a little bit to maybe introduce yourself to the podcast. Obviously, I've run into you in your AQR days and knew of you in your ITG days, but maybe just talk a little bit about how you ended up in the industry, what BestX research is, and then we can go from there. And then what we want to do is talk about some of the reports that you're working on and that you've put out there. But thanks for joining us and over to you, my man. Thanks, John, and thanks for having me. Look forward to this podcast. So Bestex Research, I started it three years ago. We've built an independent algorithmic trading platform. We offer execution algorithms for equities, futures, and FX. Our approach is a bit different from other providers. We tend to be more systematic, more measurement-focused. Our business model is independent, which basically means that you know, buy-side firms can choose the broker that they want to trade with, uh, you know, the, if they have to pay some research bills or whatever the reasons might be and, and still use our platform. Prior to Bestex, I was at AQR. I ran trading for them globally across asset classes. And before that, I was at ITG for about 10 years. And, you know, my background is I'm, I'm a computer science guy, a software engineer, and with random luck, in 2001, I uh, landed at you know ITG, and ITG was at the forefront of uh, electronic trading. So, and the rest is history. Fell in love with trading and algorithmic trading and market structure. Built out their product first in the US, and then rolled it out globally. And at AQR, AQR is a systematic firm, systematic asset management firm. They tend to be very focused on minimizing slippage it makes a big difference especially in systematic strategies and they wanted to build out their execution algorithms internally instead of using street algorithms and it was a different opportunity for me because it was multi-asset and and we built out our internal execution algorithms for equities futures and fx automated pretty much all of that execution through these internal algorithms and and just basically using the street just for direct market access or as you know as liquidity providers and and bestex is sort of like an extension of that approach you know that we tried at aqr and had a big impact and we're trying to sort of democratize the same approach and and make it available to all asset managers cool i i see now because i was going to ask you actually a, a question on that so Bestex Research creates an algo and firm that wants to use it like a buy side will use the algo and then just use the broker in a DMA notion. So they'll just take the slice, send it to the broker and direct the broker 
Is it down to where to trade it, how to trade it, or just how much? Yeah, so we make, you know, our algorithms will make all the decisions as far as the price of the limit order, you know, price of the child orders, the time of the child orders, the order types to be used or which venue to be used. All of those okay. decisions are made by the algorithms, but, you know, they can choose that okay, they want to use, you know, so-and-so bank to, to get to the market. There is another approach we use, which is, you know, the brokers can can basically provide our algorithms directly to the buy side as well. So, so we're serving, you know, both buy side and sell side customers. Cool. And prior to that AQR experience, were you mainly equities and it was AQR that branched you into other asset classes? That is correct. Okay. You know, at ITG for 11 years or so, it was pretty much all equities. Cool. Yeah, no, it's a, obviously, if you know, the guys at IEX were very microscopically involved in equities, but always interested in other asset classes. How do you like branching out and doing other asset classes? I, I think I think it's very interesting. You know, equities is probably, you know, I would say the most evolved market structure, obviously. Futures are very similar to equities, I would say. You know, they're, they're not fragmented by by design because, you know, because the exchange itself is the is the is the clearinghouse and 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 they sort of own that market. So it's very similar to equities. There are some differences. But FX is, I think, very interesting because FX is now pretty electronic. Most of the liquidity provision is actually done electronically, but, you know, but it's an over-the-counter asset class. And, and a lot of the asset managers still don't use execution algorithms to access, you know, access the market. So it's literally sort of a man versus machine kind of a situation because it's over-the-counter and because it's not anonymous you know, there are lots of idiosyncrasies when it comes to FX. And, and, and as a result, you know, we believe that the, the opportunity to, to improve execution is, is also, you know, much, much bigger in FX than it is in other asset classes. Makes a lot of sense. But what I'm going to do is really get back to equities because it's all we, <laughs> we, we, we focus on. But no, I, I know another part of what BestX Research does, obviously, is put out research. And we'll talk about your COVID-19 impact research, which we thought was great and sort of reconnected you and I. But I also know that you're working on something and I wanted to include uh, John Ramsey on this part. Thank so, you. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you for, for bringing me back into the podcast. I really appreciate it. He gets, he gets really, really antsy, mm-hmm. right? But like, <laughs> so on uh, May 6th, SEC voted unanimously to, I'm, I'm copying this from a Ray J comment today, mm-hmm. as SEC Chairman Jay Clayton put it, the modernization of governance structure for NMS plans and provide consolidated equity market data to market participants. Well done, and a nice kiss up to the SEC chair. That's a, that's a really that's a nice touch. We do have a filing in there, John. So I gotta go. Okay, ask your question, John. <laughs> uh, yeah. So no, I'm interested to get your perspective on this. So the reform of the consolidated data system is something that we at IEX have been very focused on and have been pushing for a long time, along with a lot of a lot of folks in the industry. And so I think a lot of people were surprised at the speed with which the SEC acted on the the piece that Ronan had mentioned, which is about sort of the governance of the system, whether you have industry representatives. So there, now there will be uh, required to be industry representatives um, on the SIP committee and, you know, a single national market system plan, various other things around conflicts and, and confidentiality. And then beyond that, the big, even bigger piece that's out for consideration is expanding the scope of the content of consolidated data 
to include things like depth of book and changing the definition of round lots. So you have more information about, about more stocks. And then most important, creating like a system of competing consolidators. So you don't have just a government granted monopoly, but you actually allow for private sector companies to compete in providing the service. So that's a long intro, but do you have any general perspectives on those things? Do you think that the that the SEC is generally moving in the right direction and have any general observations about that? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, we're a big fan of the proposal that SEC has put, put together, you know, introducing competition as it comes to being able to produce SIP data and allowing more than one vendor to, to be able to do that. I think I think that's, you know, that it goes without saying that that's a great idea. And, and similarly, you know, allowing more content to, to be distributed through SIP. You know, frankly, we, we think that, you know, even though a lot of a lot of the market participants don't like to associate themselves with, you know, with SIP and it's got, you know, a bit of a bad reputation. You know, we, we think that in reality, a lot of the providers do use SIP in, in one way or another. And, and just having more content available through SIP would be, you know, would be uh, very helpful. We particularly like the idea of, of making the round size based on dollar amount than shares amount. You know, having a lock size of 100 shares, it makes no economic sense. If, if someone wants to buy, you know, $5,000 of Google or $5,000 of, you know, a $5 stock, there should be no difference. You know, investors don't think in terms of buying number of shares. They think in terms of investing a certain dollar amount or selling a certain dollar amount. So, so I think that this whole 100 shares notion is pretty poor notion, especially because, because that makes its way into what creates the national best bid and offer and what's protected and what's not. So ideally, we would have liked to see all odd lots be available through SIP, but we understand why they are proposing what they're proposing because it kind of gets messy with with the order protection rules and stuff like that overall we are a big fan of this proposal we think that would have you know meaningful impact in the marketplace it should reduce bid offer spread you know and it should help all investors and level the playing field we do have some comments on you know what we would like to say called tweaks to what their proposal is we think that this whole idea of sort of separating you know, today you have the same NBBO and the same PBBO, the same national best bid, best bid and offer is also the protected best bid and offer. But but the SEC doesn't seem to be wanting, you know, to want to touch the, the, the PBBO. And as a result, they're sort of separating what's going to be the NBBO and PBBO. And I think that's going to create a lot of chaos and confusion in the marketplace. You know, a lot of the you know, systems have been implemented in a way that they can only use one NBBO. So now there's going to be a confusion. You know, if you're running a dark pool, should the midpoint be based on NBBO or PBBO? If you're running a TCA report, should that be based on NBBO or PBBO? And if you're a wholesaler and providing markets to retail providers, you know, they're obviously going to be more incentivized to use PBBO rather than NBBO. So so it may just negate the the effect, the positive effect they're trying to bring with you know with the right sizing the round lot definition. So, you know, so our advice would be to you know to use a more economically rational approach that they're using for NBBO and also apply that to PBBO and just keep it simple. 
Right. Well, I, for sure, I, I expect that'll be one of the things that people comment on. Another question is a big part of this proposal is expanding the content of information by expanding the number of different price points that are, that are available. So the SIP today only provides the best bid and the best offer at each particular exchanges, each particular exchange. And this would extend that out to five different price levels. I would imagine for maybe some users, probably even that isn't enough and they would want more. And of course, they could still buy prop data feeds if they wanted more. Do you think that that's a, a substantial advance in terms of uh, the information that, that would be available in the SIP? Yes, I think so. And, and mainly because, you know, if it is not available via SIP, an exchange can charge whatever they want to charge for, for, for their direct feed. So, you know, exchanges can compete with each other and they do compete with each other very heavily. And, 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 and you see that in their, in their pricing when it comes to sort of, you know, what they charge and access fee and what they make on each transaction. You see them competing heavily, but, you know, there's zero competition when it comes to market data, right? Only an exchange can provide their own market data. And if they have that pricing power, you know, that, that, that makes it hard for, you know, smaller players. And we are a smaller player in this marketplace. And, and, and I think it makes it harder for even smaller high-frequency trading firms who, you know, who, who may want to make markets. And, and it sort of favors the big firms who trade a lot of volume. So, you know, per transaction, you know, any amount of market data bills are probably going to not hurt them. So I think it's a great idea to be able to, you know, as, as a first principle, we think that most useful data, whether it's auction information or depth of book data or odd lot, all of that data should be available via SIP. One thing that you know we think a bit differently from the SEC is is that you know I, I think that they should they should make it optional for the SIP vendor. So if, in the world where they have many SIP vendors who want to make this data available, they should leave it to the SIP vendor whether they want to make this data available to you know to their clients or not, as long as you know, the exchanges are mandated to make this information available to them, they can then decide based on the demand they have whether they should make that data available to their clients. Some SIP vendors in this futuristic state, you know, may just want to focus on the speed and they may not want to include the depth of book data and others may, you know, may want to make the depth of book data available to their clients. So, so I think it's a great idea that the exchanges are mandated to make this information available to these SIP vendors, but leave it to the SIP vendors whether to you know, make it available or not. It makes sense. I see that Eric is raising his hand. Yeah, I think I want to bring Eric in now because this is very, very timely. And I know Hitesh and Eric have had a little chat on this. Obviously, we're all at home during this crisis and FestX Research put out a, a very good report on liquidity, accessibility, impact while trading, everything pertaining to what people are very interested about is what's going on in the market right now during this crisis. And I think, Eric, you might have some questions on that report, but I will say, like I said at the beginning, uh, we are big fans of the report and we know that a lot of people in the industry are, so congratulations there. But uh, Eric, uh, do you have any specific questions to sort of kick this off? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really great about the report is it backs up with empirical data, but we all sort of know intuitively if you're looking at a screen or your working orders that spreads have blown out, that books have gotten thinner, but to try and quantify the impact to your implementation costs or to your everyday trading processes, what I think is, is partly fascinating about the paper, but I also like it's, it's kind of bold to make recommendations. And I think 
in this world where we're all big, you know, complicated organizations, we often stop short of giving people the conclusion. And, and in the report, you've got a couple of, of recommendations that I think are worth diving into as well. So I sort of read it as a, a bit of a practitioner who wrote down and scribbled and wanted to ask follow-ups along the way. So I, I guess a couple of things I just want to drive into. In the beginning of the report, you mentioned, and I'll quote, the average cost of trading for the COVID-19 crisis period for S&P 100 stocks is 20 and a half basis points compared to 2.9 bips. So I, I want to ask a two-part question. When you make that comparison, going from 2.9 to 20 and a half basis points, for how big of an order are we talking about? Yes. And then so, so that that's Eric. Basically, we 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 want to do sort of more apples to apples comparison. So what we did was we took the the normal period, which was I think in January, and it's basically comparing the cost of liquidity for the same amount of liquidity available at the depth, at, at the touch. So whatever liquidity was available at the touch in January for the same amount, how much would you pay in, in March during this, during this highly volatile period? Got it. So if there was 1,000 shares on the offer typically in January, how deep do I have to go and how big of a spread do I have to cross to put 1,000 on? in the COVID crisis. That is correct. When I see numbers like that, uh, like 10 times, nearly 10 times increase in cost, can you contextualize that like historically? What was it like in 08, you know, at ITG when you would see numbers like this or um, any sort of context for people who aren't on the desk? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it should, uh, you know, we, we didn't really get the opportunity to sort of compare this to what the numbers were during financial crisis. In terms of you know, where the volatility index was, you know, it was comparable to, to the days in financial crisis. We actually just got the data, you know, for financial crisis and flash crash, and we're trying to compare just to sort of get a context around this. But, you know, if, if I just have to go with a gut feeling, I think the costs are probably very similar to, you know, to what we saw during, you know, during those days. Right. But it's like over a period of a number of different weeks, and it's kind of like really remarkable. I have to say, your report, I think, was really clearly written and understandable. I, I you know, I'm not particularly a wonk uh, or quant. <laughs> Ronan, <laughs> Ronan acts like I can't understand anything very technical. But yeah, I'm surprised you knew what wonk was. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ronan. I appreciate that. No, but I thought it was very clear, and it really does give a sense for how extraordinarily stressful and difficult this period has been for institutional traders in particular, I would think, trying to find liquidity and then and then even once they find it, trying to find it at costs that are that are reasonable. And, and it's not just the spread, I, I gather from your report. One of the things is sort of the market impact costs of trading have really been blown out as well. If maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's typically, I mean, those things go hand in hand, you know, bid offer spread. Bid offer spread is the cost of liquidity at, you know, at, at for, for smaller size and market impact is sort of the cost of liquidity for a bigger size. And, and generally speaking, both are, you know, directly proportional to the volatility and inversely proportional to, you know, this is square root of volume. So, so, you know, what we saw was volatility has, you know, gone up and, and as a result, both, you know, both bid offer spread and market impact costs went up. So I'm going to jump back in and ask a couple more questions about the report, things that I thought were sort of noteworthy. And, and I guess pose a question or two to you, Hatesh. So in the report, you recommend that clients, quote, pay special attention to the first 30 minutes of the day. 
So I think we all know historically the beginning of the day is the most expensive to trade, spreads are wide. And in the report, you point out that they're even wider or more difficult. And I just want to ask, like rhetorically, do you think there's a, a market structure problem in the beginning of the day, or is it just kind of that's just how price discovery works and it's always going to be more expensive on the open? Or are there things we could do better as an industry to address spreads and vol in those first 15 or 30 minutes of the day? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't think so. At least, you know, I don't have any good ideas around that. I, I, I think it's just that's where you have price discovery, you know, as, as, as markets open. And, and as a result, you have very high volatility and, and, and liquidity providers, you know, want to get paid for, for taking, you know, more risk in the morning. And, and as a result, the spreads are going to be high in the morning. So, you know, I don't really have any great ideas as far as how to improve that. We just wanted to point that out as far as the magnitude of that is concerned so that you know in this environment you're all busy you know as you know as as you're trading and 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 you don't really have sort of time to sort of sit back and look at all these numbers and we just wanted to provide them some numbers so that you know they have a good idea of what they're dealing with it makes sense i mean you, you can't blame somebody for trying to look for a, a a great fix there but the close to open moves in the market were quite profound in this crisis in particular so it kind of makes intuitive sense that on the open spreads would be even wonkier than usual. And I think parlaying that into the open, you know, we ran into multiple market-wide circuit breakers. And in your report, you talked about not just the market-wide circuit breaker halts, but the amount of LULD halts that we hit. And I, like personally, I'll admit, I didn't have any clue how many of these we hit. I was so focused on market-wide circuit breakers, latency, volume, the VIX. So with regards to LULD and market-wide circuit breakers, I guess I want to pose a question to you, um, that if you were sort of running the SEC and you had an option to make a lasting and permanent impact and, and kind of gave you three choices to, to pick from, you could change the market-wide circuit breaker rules, whether it's the, the thresholds, the duration, you could change LULD, or you could leave them both alone for five years. Like What would be the, the rank order priority for you in, in those sort of menu of choices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll probably, uh, you know, go for the third one, you know, just leave them alone. They may not be perfect. Perhaps, you know, there are better levels than, than what we got right now. Perhaps they should be based on, you know, bid offer spread rather than the stock price as they are today. But, you know, perfect can be the enemy of good. And, you know, they've served us well, right? You know, the last thing you want is, you know, what happened during flash crash and, you know, even with this unprecedented volatility, even though the, the, the costs, you know, were pretty high, but they were still justifiable by the volatility of, you know, of, of the marketplace. But at the same time, we didn't really, you know, hear about any outages and any trades getting busted and, you know, things like that, which can really undermine, you know, investor confidence, which is probably the worst thing, you know, the worst thing for, 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 for liquidity. So, you know, given those three choices, I'll probably leave them alone. I think that makes a lot of sense. And as an industry, you know, while we, we don't yet have the cap, I think it's worth a hat tip to the commission to get in place the LULD to, to get rid of some of the exchange volatility controls that existed in the financial crisis that were not uniform across listing venue. And the fact that, you know, we kind of went through this thing without an ugly dislocation. P&G didn't trade at a penny. Stocks didn't print it. You know, 9999. You know, the, the direction of the market stunk, but the market performed really well. No SIP outages, no major exchange outages. So 
definitely think some some credit is due there towards the regulatory changes we've we've seen over the years. And nice nice touch, nice touch, Eric. There to do a little a little smoochy smoochy for the for the regulator. Once again, Hitesh, can I can I give you another question where it's a choice of three? So if you were uh, if you were stuck on a desert island, and I presented you with a bottle of Irish whiskey, a set of golf clubs, or a lovely pair of IEX socks. What would you choose? Like, I'm not a golfer. What was the first choice? Uh, <laughs> a bottle of Irish whiskey. Uh -huh. IEX socks. What would you choose? Uh, I have to plug our socks at every podcast. I'm actually going to send you socks. I'm not sending you whiskey. What? Uh, you're not? I thought maybe this was going to be a different podcast. I thought. Wow. Were... Hitesh is going to be the first one to get a bottle of whiskey. You know, I've, I've run out of alcohol in my house and you've been asking my wife if I can go and get some. So I'll probably go for the first one because, you know, third one you're going to give me anyway, right? So Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> I, should, I should ask that question outside of COVID. Uh -huh. uh, how about that for an ingenious way to bring up our Xboxes and line sets? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Brilliant, Ronan. I, I didn't think it was very funny at all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you, you have a very uh, yeah, poor sense of humor. So... <laughs> One other thing I just wanted to ask you kind of from a human interest angle, because we've been talking to a lot of our guests lately about kind of what it's been like for them dealing with working remotely, whether that's worked well for you, the people, the clients that you're dealing with, is that posed any kind of issue? What's it been like from a personal standpoint, just adapting to that, this new kind of life that we're all living? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been different every week, I feel, uh, you know, every week it evolves. You know, obviously, there's nothing like sort of having a meeting in person, you know, and, and, and sort of sit in the same room and there's nothing like that. But but I think, you know, I think we were adjusted well professionally. Sometimes it feels like we're probably more productive than we were earlier. You know, <laughs> you can just get a meeting done in Zoom and, and yeah. you're done with it and you're not you know, commuting. And but but at a personal level, you know, I, I think we can only be grateful that, you know, we, we are not in the same situation as as a lot of the people are. You know, one of my colleagues, his uh, his wife and his daughter, they're both nurses. So, you know, we have none of that going on. So, right. you know, we can only be grateful and, you know, getting to spend time with, you know, my 12-year-old and six-year-old. So that that's a that's a, a great byproduct of it because everybody who you haven't talked to in a while will reach out and go, how are you and how's the family? And I have no one working on the front line. So to me, any complaint I have or my kids going nuts about not seeing their friends is, is not a complaint at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we said this a few podcasts ago. You think about it, we're all working in an industry that whatever people think about Wall Street, I would, I would argue strongly that people work very hard and working very hard leads you to spend less time with your family. Absolutely. And my kids are 16 and 15. I've never spent remotely close to two months seeing them every day. How's that going there, Ronan? <laughs> it's not going great, by the way. That's the part I was going to ask if Hitesh has a spare bedroom, but uh, we, we'll get there. Another, another question we ask every guest to put you on the spot, but what's your favorite Wall Street movie? What's my favorite Wall Street movie? Favorite Wall Street movie. It can be tangential. It can be oh, what, man. whatever you think. Probably The Big Short. Uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. No one's picked that one, one yet. One. That's mm -hmm. good. That's probably because I, I remember watching it more recently than others, you know, so. Yeah, it, it's a good movie, actually. I was really surprised how they could take such a complicated topic and make it interesting. Yeah, the book was definitely more interesting, but, you know, the movie wasn't bad. Brennan did a podcast with the characters in the big short, but he excluded uh, here me we from go. that. <laughs> yeah. John just mm -hmm. won't let mm -hmm. it go, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. 
It's like, yeah. John and I was young, I needed the money. We needed yeah. fans to listen to Boxing <laughs> Lions. And clearly you're not drawing them in. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we, 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 we try to keep these podcasts short. And I wanted to thank our, our guests, Eric Stockland and Hitesh. You guys have been great. John's been, um, John's been adequate as usual. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no. Every time he tries to find a way to demean me in some petty way. It makes me feel good. Is that yeah. bad? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, but honestly, Atesh, wish you the best of luck. I know Best X has been around for a while, but I think it's it's had its coming out party as of late. We'll we'll obviously stay in touch. And thanks for joining us on the podcast, Eric. I see that you're not sweating profusely, so we look forward to sweating with you again. Yes, remote podcasts are good for you, but we want you back in the pod. Hitesh, we're not selling it very strongly, but if you ever want to come back and do a podcast in the pod, <laughs> bring your swimwear. All right. <laughs> All right. I think we'll wrap it up for now. So thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone. And have a great, great evening. Over and out. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.